The material in this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should not rely on this information to make any medical-related decisions. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a doctor-patient relationship, and nothing should be taken as specific medical advice for any given person. I hope you enjoy Marked Medicine. Hey, Mark. I have a question. Okay. How many times do you think I've asked you that question? Do numbers go that high? I doubt it. And from that concept, the idea of marked medicine was born with Dr. Mark Brulte. And with Amanda Brulte, my favorite nurse practitioner. And you're now listening to Marked Medicine. Welcome back to Marked Medicine. We're lucky today. We have a wonderful guest, Miss Pam Turk, a family nurse practitioner. I've known you, Pam, for how long now? For 20 years. Well over 20 <laughs> years. Um, Pam is one of the busiest nurse practitioners that I've ever encountered. She does general medicine, mainly adult, um, here in Coffee County, Georgia, and has quite the history to enlighten us about. And Pam is one of the most sought-after nurse practitioners as well. Yes, it's taken us weeks to get her here. <laughs> but um, I would like to today's episode to be about the history and evolution of nurse practitioners over the last 25 years, and you are well-positioned to tell us about that, aren't you? Yes, definitely. One of the older ones. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. It's, it's been an ever-changing role that I've witnessed over the last 25 years in medicine. There's been just an uh, increasing importance of the role of nurse practitioners. The numbers have exploded. Their um, uh, functionality has increased uh, just tremendously. It's, it's actually been very fascinating to watch. I'd like to talk about the education and training of nurse practitioners and the continuation of their learning after they're out of school and the changes in the types of problems that they manage now compared to when you finished school oh so many years ago. It's, um, it's quite a story and quite a history. Is I started uh, nursing when I was 21 years old in 1991, graduated and started to work in the emergency room. We decided we were going back for our bachelor's, and so by then there was no line. There was nothing to get on. You had to physically get in the car and drive to college. So there was a group of us that we'd drive back into Albany State, and then they decided since there were so many coming over from Coffee County and from Fitzgerald that they would bring some of the classes to us. So we would meet at different hospitals. We would do whatever, and there were, one night a week we would have class. We finished that in 1996, and during that time, some of the Albany State College was wanting to start a nurse practitioner program. So they came to several of us and told us that they were wanting to start a nurse practitioner program, of which we had no clue what that was. We had no idea what a nurse practitioner did. We had no history of it in our town. There was one guy over in Tifton who had been a PA there. That was the only one that worked one of the orthopedists, the only one that I had ever heard of that even mid-level at that time. So they had to kind of groom us to prepare for starting this program because there was really no programs in this area. So we had to be have six letters of reference. We had to have had four to six years of critical care experience. We had to have six letters of recommendation. We had to be interviewed by the Georgia Board of Nursing. We had to have all kind of letters of recommendations. But the biggest thing was is we, being very young, we were only 24, 25, had just been married, and we had no children, had anything. So they kind of had some green things to work with. 
But we did have a strong foundation with nursing because, as you know, working in a rural hospital, you've got to be able to think on your feet because you're it. You don't have a lot of backup with specialists. So they asked us to go there, and so we reviewed all the core stuff, and they mainly wanted to know what they wanted us to do as nurse practitioners. So my question was they wanted us to promote wellness, which is not what I do. (laughs) I would like to promote wellness, but that's really not because you have such sick people that you have nobody taken care of. So you actually, the program started with your class at Albany State. There was one class ahead of me. They were starting with them, and we were the second class at Albany State. And so y'all went and met with the State Board of Nursing and mm-hmm. the legislature, or whoever, whomever you had to meet with. After to- after we got into the program, they were wanting us to petition for nurse for prescribing rights, for nurse practitioners, for equal stuff and we didn't have really a clue and so luckily one of the girls that I went to nurse practitioner school had a lot of contacts through her father who we knew the state representative and we go up to Atlanta to basically pick it and we were still pretty green pretty I mean we had hardly left Ambrose Georgia to go to Atlanta to go to the capital and ask for prescriptive authority and so they told us to go and meet with our legislators. Well, we knew them, so we got up there and just started talking to them. And our instructor like, had a heart attack when she looked, and we were down there with the podium <laughs> at the pro tem. But we, you know, they the legislator had no idea what we were wanting. They were, in fact, our representative asked me, said, "What are y'all wanting to do? Give vaccines or something without the doctor seeing them?" And so we we really don't know. But they told us to come and ask for this right here. But when we when we know more, we'll we'll ask for more. So it was several years before we got that back. But so really, y'all were instrumental in getting prescriptive authority for nurse practitioners in Georgia. Yes. Well, we, we were one of the first that went and lobbied. Now, it was several years later before everything was approved. Right. You had but, to start somewhere. But we didn't, the legislator, to even approve it, they had no idea what a nurse practitioner was. So we had to show to care of his mother. So basically, you didn't know what a nurse practitioner was. And a school came to you and said, you want to be one. And Correct. Said, that sounds cool. And then you had to go convince the government to let you be one. Correct. And next thing you know, you're taking pictures with soon-to-be Governor Barnes at the legislature convincing everybody to let y'all be nurse practitioners. Correct. I still have the photo. Well, that, that's a really cool story that very few people mm-hmm. have. And over the last 25 years, you finished in what year? I uh, graduated in 1997, in December of 97, from nurse practitioner school. And so that's the year I finished residency. So we've been practicing the same length of time. And there's been a crazy changes in the United States of America during that time. In, in 1995, mid-residency for me, the population of the United States was about 250 million people. Now it's over 330 million. Um, certainly, there during that time period, uh, there's been increasing subspecialization in medicine. There's certainly no larger number of physicians that are willing to take broad care of really sick patients. Um, so relatively, there seems to me at least to be even fewer physicians today to care for these people than there were back then. Uh, I'm sure you've watched this same progression. Well, I think a lot of previously you had some of the specialists who would at least consider them as a whole human and not just the one specialty. So if they didn't, if it turned out not to be the problem for that specialist, they would at least recommend something back to the primary or what. But now it's if it's not their problem, they kind of wash their hands and hunt them back to primary care to start over. 
And so your role has become even more important. Yes. Because you're you're truly the only person oftentimes taking care of this real person in front of you. Correct. And not just the changes in demographics, but the population itself has changed. The population is much older. Everybody lives now with multi-organ disease that 30, 40, 50 years ago they would not have survived. And that's wonderful from a human standpoint. It's great for families. It's great for individuals. But it makes our jobs much more difficult. The uh, Just a couple of things that come to mind quickly. Everybody's on anticoagulation now. I mean, literally, it's like every older person I see is on anticoagulants. Uh, everybody's on immunosuppressants now because of rheumatological diseases and other problems. There's now minimally invasive surgery and endovascular interventions, whether it be heart or aorta or peripheral vascular disease. So you can work on older, sicker people now without open operations that 30 years ago you could not do. So these people actually get diseases treated and allows them to even live longer with their multi-organ disease. So right. the complexity of the patients is mind-boggling some days. Um, uh, what I'm sure you've seen the same thing. Oh, definitely. I see, you know, when you're looking at the risk factors with some of these uh, diseases, you know, depends on how you pick the diagnosis codes. You know, now it's all a matter of billing games and different things, but um doesn't matter what you call it, but if you bill correctly and they see the acuity of the patients and add this up, there's at times I think it's 1.5 is critical. I'll have some just with actually what they have will be four or five. Yeah, so really, really super sick people. And the the other thing that is interesting to me is today, compared to 20, 30 years ago, the rapid and massive amounts of data we get with rapid CTs and CT angiograms and MRIs that are so much faster than they used to be, all of these data points that come in on patients now. So not only are the patients more sick and they have a greater diversity of disease inside their bodies, but you're getting data about these processes and massive amounts of data. I tell people all the time, I don't, I don't know if you've seen the old movies from depicting medieval times where the, the, two, the two armies are facing one another and they all unleash the arrows at once and there's thousands of arrows in the air simultaneously. Sometimes that's what I feel like sitting in the ER. I'm getting that kind of data all at once. I feel like the arrows are raining down on me with just, only well, it's not true arrows, it's information. It's information overload. I'm getting just massive amounts of information about people instantaneously. And so you have to start collating and processing all this data, which is challenging. And culling out what's important and what's not important. Exactly. And um, so it's it's been um, something to watch. Um, and, and the different medicine changes. I mean, you know, when I got out of school, there was like metformin and insulin. You know, those yeah. are your choices. <laughs> Some right. amarillo or glucophage, you know, but... The changes in just diabetic medicine and learning how to add that to I know it's difficult for when students come through, they ask me how do I know all that because I grew with the medicines, you yes. know, but it is very overwhelming when you're going to internal medicine. Well, and it's funny you bring that up because I was actually thinking that not only are you a great nurse practitioner for your patients, but you're a great teacher as well because I did some of my clinicals with you and you were, we were talking earlier when you were explaining, you know, how you look at a patient and how you would, you know, teach people how to do that, Re recap all that. I think basically, you know, what I try to instill in my students is to see the patient as a whole. 
and to listen to them. If you listen to them long enough, they're going to tell you what's wrong with them. But knowing their family history, being in a small rural area like I am, I basically know 90% of them. I've taken care of at least one or two family members. So you kind of know things that are going on in the family, and you can actually, they come in and they'll have a multitude of complaints. They'll have all kind of symptoms, and being able to kind of cull that through, knowing what they've actually been through in their life, what's kind of important to them, as opposed to just saying, you know, my chest hurts, but you have to look at other factors too. You know, I know that you've been under a lot of stress. or And talking to them, you they will tell you, but a lot of people just didn't, you know, it's a numbers game running them in and out. How quick can you see how many patients? And, and they're missing a lot of things. And I think that's a part of the downfall of medicine is because we don't have that human interaction. You know, it's great to make money, but it's also great to be able to take care and fully correctly diagnose this patient and find them some help. It's hard to do that, I have found, if you don't actually sit down and take time with the patient and figure out what their family history is, their medical, past medical history, surgical history, all those things are important. Yes, and I know, I've known you for a long time now, and always the running joke is I've all, I've never seen somebody practice medicine by family history alone, but Cam Turk has managed that art and has actually created that art. She Basically, you're a walking gene analyzer is the best yes, I can figure. I know a lot of these families in Coffee County and who's married what and what diseases should come out. <laughs> Makes it a lot easier. <laughs> now, I'd like to back up a little bit and go back to your experience as a nurse practitioner because when you finished in 97, there really were no nurse practitioners down here. Tell us about all that. I first started um, in Fitzgerald, and I was one of the previous ladies had started the walk-in clinic there. So I've kind of finished that grant and we got the walk-in clinic opened in Fitzgerald. So I worked that for about six months and I was still ER director. So I was having to manage all the staff in the ER, all the ER physicians ordering everything as well as working in the clinic. And then opportunity came, Tifton was hiring, it was a husband and wife and she was internal medicine, he was pulmonology. And so I went to work in Tifton and I worked over there from January 2001 till October in the Twin Towers fell. And of course, as we all know, the world changed on September the 11th, and that's when they decided they were going to be moving back home. So I was going to be without a job. Didn't I had a small child, and my husband was the EMS director at that time, and he was thinking about moving to Coffee County and becoming the EMS director here. So during that time, I went to a ER physician that was moving, we went to a going away party and I happened to mention that I needed a job. And the next thing I know, the physician that I've been with for since 2001 called me on vacation. And back then you didn't have a cell phone, have anything and said, Hey, can you meet with me? And so we're on the way back from the mountains with my mom, dad, a two-year-old in the car seat and my husband in a little Toyota Camry. And they dropped me off in the hospital parking lot, like find him, do whatever you can. <laughs> So I meet him, have the interview, and he, I, when can I start? I said, well, I think I need to give them a notice or something over in Tifton. So I've been with him ever since. I kind of collect and add jobs to it, but I've been with him since October 2001. Well, and I know him, and I feel pretty sure that he would confirm that that's probably the yes. best parking lot decision he's ever made. <laughs> yes. Coincidentally, today is September 11th. Correct. Hats off to the heroes. Um, but... Uh, 
Yeah, so you, when you started here, were there other nurse practitioners in this community or were you it? When I started in this area, I believe there possibly was one other PA, possibly one other nurse practitioner, but it was by no means very many. And it was having to talk to patients, convince them that I was capable of taking care of them and convincing myself that I was able to take care of them. And I think a lot of my advantages, I've had a lot of good people that I've worked with, a lot of good physicians that I've, that are some of the most brilliant people that I've ever worked with. And I have maintained a good relationship with them and I can call whoever. I'm not ashamed to say, I don't know what I'm doing or I've got to call a friend. I need to ask a question. And a lot of people don't ever have that confidence to say, I don't know. And I think that's where you thrive is able to know your limitations and be able to figure out what you can do to help, but know who to call for that perfect situation. So you've also gotten to watch kind of the evolution of the education of nurse practitioners as well. Oh, yes. I mean, it went to, you know, the criteria to get in a nurse practitioner school was so stringent till you didn't have a lot. And then once the need became more, they kind of lowered the bar and started accepting a lot more. And at that that time, you know, it's good. I want the I want this field to expand, but at the same time, you still want to have the same quality that you have had, and that's some of some of the problem I have is they have such limited background till it's hard to train somebody in internal medicine when they come and do clinicals with me when they've only worked in one home health or a you know a very limited area because it is so wide, and so it's hard for them to do that. So I think you know having a good critical care or hospital-based background before going there, I really think helps them in whatever field of mid-level practice that they want. Even when I went to school, they still required us to have at least two years of critical care experience. And we had to do not interviews with the nursing board, or I may not have done it, but interviews with, I went to Georgia Southern to interviews with their instructors. And whereas now I'm not even sure that any of those things are a requirement anymore. And that's one thing that Mark and I have talked about a lot. Even though I feel like my education was kind of stringent, I don't feel like I got the pathophysiology training that he got, which is one reason why I'm always like, hey, Mark, what do I do? It's It's mm-hmm. been amazing to watch this explosion of this field because it, oh, yeah. it truly is an explosion. And, and the thing that's important to me, one of the things that's important to me about it is the relationship between physicians and nurse practitioners. And I know you, you're such a likable, wonderful person. Everybody loves Pam. Oh, I don't know if I'd go that far. uh, (laughs) I've never found anyone that does it. But, and so I know you have built up over the years relationships with various doctors. You call me sometimes wanting advice about some complex problem. And I'd like to talk about how important that relationship is. um, So our listeners can understand that oftentimes you're not alone in the battle for your patient. There's people behind you that they may not even realize are there. That's very true. There's no way one person knows it all. There's no way one person has all the answers, but you have to have a good, vast relationship with a lot of different specialists, a lot of different people to make things happen. Because, as you, you know, a lot of times you hit brick walls like trying to refer patients or trying to get them in the loop. And, you know, they're saying it'll be six months. Well, they're going to be dead by then. So sometimes you have to have somebody you know in the office that can move that particular patient's referral up. So it's it's a whole conglomeration of different people that do that. Yes. And the other thing that, that 
basically the concept of marked medicine, which I know we talked about before this, is is take care of the patient like they're in your own in your own family. And so to me, when uh, one of the nurse practitioners or PAs in one of the clinics calls the ER and wants to send the patient to the ER, they usually quite courteously call and inform us what's going on with the patient. I try to be I try to be overly nice to them and thank them for sending the patient because what I don't want to do is ever put up a barrier between that patient and and that patient getting the proper care that they need. And so I always want the nurse practitioners, PAs, primary care physicians, whomever needs to call me in the ER and say, hey, I need to send Mr. Smith because of XYZ. I want them to feel comfortable making that phone call. How important is that to you as a nurse practitioner that you can call doctors that basically aren't mean to you and try to help you? Oh, very. Anytime you call and somebody's very accepting or listens to your plot with this particular patient or whatever is going on and at least offers some help and says, you know, come on, send them over or have you tried this? Versus saying, you know, making you feel belittled or making you feel like you should have never called and your concerns are not valid. So that is very important. Very, very. It makes you have a better relationship and that helps with all the patient outcomes. Yes. And you know what's funny is we've co-managed many people together over the years. A lot. (laughs) And we've talked to surgeons, critical care, trauma surgeons, oncological surgeons, aortic surgeons, heart surgeons, brain surgeons, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, these are phenomenally educated people, in, uh, brilliant people with with decades of clinical experience. I mean, these are these are world class physicians and world class surgeons, and they take our phone calls, and it's just like talking to your friend next door, and and that's what I I think people deserve in healthcare. I think that they oh, deserve to be treated by the best, and the best deserves. And they and they deserve to be treated not only by the best, but they deserve to be treated as the best patient that 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 doctor's ever had. It and those and it's amazing that those incredible doctors that we're talking about, and you know the mm-hmm. names, I can't say mm-hmm. them right now, but you know who I'm talking about. That how well they treat us and how well they treat the patients we send to them. It's it's really phenomenal to watch. Oh yes, and I think you know when you do refer and they do see. Hey, that patient really was a train wreck. That they really were legit with those questions, and they they build that trust with us. That when I do call, I'm not calling you on something that's not that I don't need a help with. I'm needing some help at that time. And so once they get to know you, I think it it really builds that relationship. Their trust is more, and it they just don't question and say, "I'll help you." I think they build that trust in you because. They also get to know you as a provider, and they know, you know, that you are taking care of the patient as if they're part of your own family, and you're doing, by the time you call them, you've already done all the right things. You're not just... Yes, right. That's kind of a a joke. Now, some of the insurance companies have kind of changed things around, and some of the specialists don't like it. Previously, with our job, we basically had them tied up in a bow and said, this is the diagnosis, Mr. Specialist. Here you go. Do your thing. Well, now a lot of the insurance companies won't allow us to do the MRIs, won't allow us to do that. So they're having to do what we did before and order the MRI for the back pain or order whatever and, you know, kind of cull it out. They're not as thrilled with that, but it is it's frustrating on our end that we can't do some of those. But it is previously we had everything tied up. This is the diagnosis. Mr. Specialist, bless it. 
and the one of the other things you talked about was rural rural medicine, where we are in a very small community, uh, limited. We do have specialists here, but there's certainly not enormous number of them. There's you may have a cardiologist and a back surgeon, so it's not like they're available twenty four seven three sixty five. So it's very different working out here than, say, in the middle of Atlanta or the middle of New York City. I mean, what what has been your experience with that? Oh, I know. I mean, it's better now. We do have some more specialty available. But I know in in Fitzgerald, when I was over there, there was no surgeon on call there. We had to ship whatever it was. There was no vet. <laughs> there, I mean, I've treated rattlesnakes and dogs in the, in the back of a car <laughs> that they pull up because no vet, you know. But you just see so many um, limitations to access to specialists because they're so overworked and so overwhelmed in these areas and nobody really wants to move to an area that doesn't have a lot to offer their families, their children. So a lot of times we have to grow your own specialist and you have to reach into the schools and you have to, you know, people that are interested in medicine and train them to come back up. And we do have a program through Coffee High that has really been instrumental in helping kind of funnel some of those students that are interested in it. Um, I'm on one of the boards through there, and it's it's really amazing that those kids have such interest, but they don't know the resources that are available to get into different schools to do that and to see whatever. You know, they say, I want to go to nursing school. Well, there's a lot into nursing school. You can go into this, this, and this. And so now they are able to come and do some clinical with us, shadow some hours, ask them more questions, and I think that's catching a lot of the youth um, that we could potentially get back here to expand medicine. But just limitations with, I know right now, urology is at a all-time high, and you wouldn't think that everybody has retired that has been in urology. Uh, endocrinology, they are few and far between. areas. There's none in our areas. And so when you are in, you know, different areas, I know when my husband was at Emory for a long time, there was a specialist for everything. I mean, every subspecialty, and they didn't think of anything for consulting whatever, consulting what specialist it was. But I, I see sometimes you get too many specialists and you don't see anybody seeing you as a whole. You've got to have a team meeting with five different doctors before anybody makes a decision. So there are advantages to both, but I do think that we need access to those specialists, but you still need that primary care, somebody that kind of keeps you sees you as a whole to make sure that this is being taken care of and that nothing's getting overlooked. Well, and I'm saying that now more than ever, working in palliative care. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever I get a patient, I'm like, who is their primary care doctor? I mean, that's the first thing that I want to know. Because I'm like, I mean, I can get you some home health and and like a bed, but like, where's Pam? I mean. Where's somebody that can get all this. Yeah, where's Pam? Because I don't know what these medicines are or what they're for. And I'm just, you know, I'm just like a specialty at this point. So. (laughs) Yeah, and that's a that's a big area that's growing, and I you know I hope they get more funding for that because it's such a need in this area. You know, they're not dying, and you don't die on hospice, and you're too well for home health. We have such a gray area that needs to be fulfilled. So, with this new program where you introduce the high school kids to mm-hmm. healthcare, essentially, and various roles and jobs in healthcare, mm-hmm. hopefully, some of those kids will grow up, get educated become whatever they're going to be and we'll have ties to the community in return. Definitely. We I think this will be the third year that we've we've done it. I actually have a meeting coming up, but it's you know, it's not just nurses, doctors. I mean it includes business people, different things in hospital, different, you know, careers that they could have. And I really think that that is 
helping those kids a lot more than we even realize because, you know, when you're trying to make a decision to go, do you want to be a nurse or a doctor? That's when you automatically think healthcare. But there's so much more, even just with the text, phlebotomy and other things that if your parents are not in the medical field, they have no idea what it is, you know? You're right. And that's what I told Mark. I said, when I went to nursing school, I don't know the exact statistics, but just from my memory, I was one of the few that didn't have a family member in the medical field. My mama wasn't a nurse. My grandma wasn't a nurse, you know, and so I felt like I really struggled. I was at a disadvantage, you know, because a lot of my other classmates had always seen the way that nurses acted and they knew what nursing roles were. And me, I'm just sitting over there, you know, tried my hardest to memorize you know, what RBC stood for and yeah. stuff. And, you know, you are at a disadvantage. Which my mama did. She worked in a doctor's office when I was small. And But I have two friends that I started basically grammar school with. And one of them uh, decided that she was going to go to nursing school. And the other two of us didn't really know what we wanted to do. It was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. We'll go, we'll go too. <laughs> so that's kind of how we got in that. So occasionally she'll call and say, I don't know if I made the right decision for us all. And I said, well, we'll see how that is. But it, it is a very rewarding career. It's just sometimes you get overwhelmed. You just don't know which end is up some days. Well, there's no doubt that y'all made the right decision. I know all three of y'all and the thousands of people that y'all have touched and saved and helped over the years are are also certain y'all made the right decision. Now, that brings me to another point, the future of nurse practitioners. Clearly, it has exploded over the last 25 years. That is going to continue. Um, the role of the nurse practitioner will only expand. And I know that you're sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, how can my role expand any further because I'm overwhelmed on a daily basis. But what advice can you give to people that are becoming nurse practitioners or think they may want to be nurse practitioners or or are are or are brand new nurse practitioners? Well, I think you have to build, kind of flourish where you're planted, but you also have to start building those relationships with different people. And it doesn't just necessarily have to be physicians. It can be different people in the hospital. It can be because you never know when you're going to need them. And so in the community, because there's different things, you need to build a database of people that you can call on for help. And, you know, if you've never worked in the hospital or you've never worked in an emergency room and you don't have that, it's hard when you don't have contacts to be a new grad and be on your own. I would also say if whoever your collaborating physician, if you're not comfortable with, if they don't talk to you, if they don't tell you anything, get a new job. Or Life's make, too short. Right. Or if they make you feel inadequate for asking a question, get a new job. Right. Because Do not stay there. Please always ask questions. Yes. is you know... Your job is to provide care, is to help the patient that you can and, you know, to help your collaborating physician, to help whoever you're with. But still, you see people who are too scared to talk to whoever they work with or too scared to call somebody. You know, you've got to find comfort in, you know, people that you can trust, people that you can ask questions to. And I think that's where I was very comfortable with is the fact that I had, I knew you know, back then, true, you didn't have a cell phone, but I knew their numbers and I could call their office. I could call their house. I could call wherever it was. I could track somebody down. I was never really alone. I was not out there just in the sea floating. If I didn't know something, there was somebody, no matter how simple the question was, I had a backup. I was talking to a girl last week who's about to finish nursing school. and She was like, Amanda, I don't know what I want to do. I just, I don't 
know anything. And I said, the fact that you're willing to say that tells me you'll be okay. Because the fact that you're willing to acknowledge that you don't know it all and that, you know, you want to go somewhere where you can learn, that's, you're ahead of the game. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I first, my first night ever having a job, I had given, I think, two shots. One of them was to an orange. So, you know, I was kind of very green. And I go to the emergency room. My preceptor is outside smoking. My ward clerk has the first night, and I have a 15-year-old that come in and told me she was constipated. So I said, okay. I try to take her blood pressure, and all of a sudden, she looks at me, and she says, what's between my legs? I said, I have no clue. Well, we delivered an eight-and-a-half-pound baby. I didn't even know where the phone system was there. So finally, when I get the preceptor, I open the door. I said, I'm going to need some help in here. So, you know, that baby would be born in 91, 30-something years old now. But I knew then I could function with whatever else. <laughs> You know, so it was sink or swim, but you know, you build those relationships, and I, that's something I never forgot. Day one on the job. You're right. There are some things you don't forget. <laughs> I'm sure that's that's one of those things. Well, it's, you know, often when you contact me with questions, it's, you know, there's fear on my end, too, because I know you're only calling me because it's going to be bad. Okay. It's going, it's going, you are correct. It's going to be complicated. It's not a simple something. So, and then you're like, uh, am I smart enough to help Pam? <laughs> Let, let's you try. have always let's helped try. me out. At least you've always given me a, at least a thread or something, a lifeline to hold on to, to where I can figure out something either together or who we can call and figure out the best thing for this patient. Because we have had a lot of complicated people. Yes. You know, I think, and I think that a lot in healthcare are getting away from that, what you just said, you know, let's figure out what's best for this patient. And I think that's one thing that I would urge anybody that's listening, any nurse practitioners, nurses, PAs, anything, no matter where you're at, you know, companies and corporates seem to forget that, but you can't. No. You, ha- you have to keep that focus. And I, the importance of the interpersonal relationships between the physicians and the nurse practitioners and other healthcare providers cannot be overstated. And I, and I don't think your mom would mind me relating oh, this, this story, but... Mm-hmm. You call me one day and your mom was not acting right and this had been going on for a few weeks or whatever. And the long and short of it was you presented her case to me and I said, well, maybe she has normal pressure hydrocephalus. Let's call the neurosurgeon who we call and or you called, I should say. And, and he had her up there the next day and got her tapped and she woke right up and got her shunted and she lived for eight or ten more years, eight or ten more years and was clearly non-functional and couldn't walk. Yeah, we diagnosed that because she had had her gallbladder removed. And I come home on Christmas Eve, and she had to have it open. And she had cut the drain tubes. That's when I knew something quite was not right. Yeah, so she was cutting her own drain tubes. Cutting her own drain tubes out. And so then she, three or four weeks later, they decided she had pancreatic or liver cancer because she got so jaundiced, but it was because she had scarred down and so that's when we realized what everything was going. So after the hepatio biliary bypass in Savannah is when we finally got her tapped. But yes, yeah, she had a lot of quality to life through there before she had got to the point where she was basically bedridden. And, you know, we when I presented that case, we had CT'd her head. And, you know, the images that were presented was mild ventricular dilatation. And had you not listened to me, as to what was going, sometimes she acts right, sometimes she doesn't, and want a typical dementia, she would have died a long time ago. I remember you telling me the story. She's confused, and she's doing this, and she can't walk, and, and I listen, and I listen. I said, is she incontinent? And you said, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I said, 
oh, she has normal pressure hydrocephalus. Let's call the neurosurgeon. And mm -hmm. the the important take on thing is not the diagnosis, which it's that you felt comfortable enough to call me. We both felt comfortable enough to call the neurosurgeon. Many and opinion. there was no pushback and and everybody mm -hmm. was just trying to help her and literally lives another 10 years because people are comfortable with those interpersonal relationships and is trying to do the right thing for the patient, which is what this is all about. Definitely. I definitely think that that is a lost skill that we don't talk to each other. That It's much easier to send a text, send an email or send something. But a lot of times you miss something when you don't actually have a conversation with somebody versus reading what it is on a piece of paper. Yeah, look at the patient, not the monitor. Mm -hmm. Similar concept. And, you know, a lot of these, I, that's probably one of my pet peeves, and I, I didn't realize I was practicing in the glory days when we had a piece of paper that we just actually wrote the H&P, and we could read it and figure out what it was versus all these check boxes that you can have 15 pieces of papers and not know a clue of what is going on. So I think we... We, we got away from the quality of what it is to meeting the, the boxes to get paid. You know, have you been, do you have a fire extinguisher? Do you have a firearm? Do you have other questions versus what's wrong with this person? Do you have one page that tells me their whole summary? So that's very important to try to get that isolated down away from all the other stuff. Well, and one thing, again, funny you say that, because one thing that Mark kind of had to teach me that I when I was shifting my mindset from nurse to nurse practitioner, you know, he's like, when you call me about a patient, start out with, this is a, you know, 78 year old, whatever male. He's like, you know, tell me their age, tell me their gender or whatever. Mm -hmm. He's like, you always have to start with that. And he's like, why don't y'all start with that? I'm like, I don't know. I think, I don't know. Because that sets the stage for the differential diagnosis that's going right. to start running through my mind. Mm -hmm. But now you mentioned about EMRs obliquely there. Um, there are good things about EMRs. You, you do remember the days of you couldn't find the echocardiogram report and it's just gone forever and now you have to repeat the test. So right. I do think that EMRs are very, very good for data storage and retrieval. That they're, mm -hmm. They excel at that. Um, I think that order entry is awful. It's still not where it needs to be. I think creating a chart is getting better now that we have dragon dictation to create that chart i can still tell a story now compared yeah that's to what i miss is the story that's that i could read the notes the progress notes the what is going on day to day versus those check boxes drive me nuts it doesn't tell me I, I don't even feel like i know that patient there but when i see a synopsis or i've seen somebody has dictated a report i just hold on it and just grasp with both hands thinking, thank you, Jesus, I've got a report. And for the non-medical listeners, EMR is electronic medical record. And there was a transition to EMRs 10 to 15 years ago. It was going to country. save us time. It's going to save us time. Yeah, it doesn't really It does save not us save time. us any time. <laughs> not at all. Uh, so uh, the main advice you could give to new nurse practitioners would be? Is to... At least do something in the hospital and get your skill set up because you don't know what you want to do. You don't know what setting you're going to be in. And it's much easier to learn how to start IV, how to draw blood, how to do put in a Foley catheter, how to do these things in a hospital as a new nurse versus it is 30 years after you've done it and then you've changed profession and you're no longer in a specialty office and you're going back to the, you know, primary care office and you don't have a recall. If you've ever done it, 
you can get back on that bicycle and ride. But if you've not, you have to learn and you're just not capable of learning like we were when we once were young. But I think building that foundation, having people that you can rely on, people that you trust, people that, you know, respect you. And, you know, and, and when you go in and talk with a patient, be real honest that I'm going to try to help you. This is what we're going to organize and this is how we're going to do this. I want to do things that would kill you first, make sure we're going to weed our way up. And I'll get to everything eventually, but we need to work our way backwards or how we're going to do it and get them involved in their care. So take care of them like they're in your own family. Uh, Correct. Wor- worry about the important things first. Make sure you're ruling out life threat, potentially life-threatening conditions and things like that. Um, because you will see them in the grocery store you will see them in the in the walmart you will see them in this town everywhere i mean i think you know that's a good thing too because you have an accountability with it yes well pam you've created yourself over the last 25 years and what you're doing now is completely different from what you were trained to do and you you said something earlier about learning things when you're young and I tell people all the time, there's not a single day in the ER that I regret going to dental school. I can, I've never not used my dental degree in an ER shift, not not one shift. It's always been applicable. It, it's amazing to me. So everything you learn, all of your education is important. All of your training is important. So talk to us about the difference between what you were actually trained to do those years ago and what you're actually doing now. And and well, and not that you're practicing outside of your scope because you're not, but I think that no, the job well, just description. The, the complexity of it, I mean, you have so much more responsibility now because these patients are so much sicker and you don't have a lot of people who do primary care that are willing to take these sick people because they want non-sick people that they can see a lot more volume of. So you have people that have a lot of chronic illnesses and, you know, it's not hard to have diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, kidney failure, osteoarthritis, degenerative joint disease, you know, name a plethora that they all have. But some practices in some primary care, they want you, if you're on two blood pressure medicines, you're too complicated. We're not going to see you. So you, you, you have to build on all the limitations that they have in their body to what you can actually treat them with. And you have to think because there are so many medicines that interact there are so many conditions that you can't combine these drugs with you know like you were referring to earlier with all the anticoagulation you you know we don't have as many on coumadin as we used to but you know some of the other medicines that are thinner you've got to consider bleeds and you've got to monitor different labs and if you just don't take the time to look at them they're just some complicated patients and people now don't want to do that because they want the volume to say i see 50 patients a day, or I see, you know, because they're running them in and out because they get paid more from the insurance than actually you do for taking care of complicated patients. Now, they're supposedly changing some of the laws to where the billing system will be better for complicated, but right now, you know, if you're doing broke bones or doing whatever else, setting that, you actually, you know, the revenue is a lot greater for that type, especially than it is taking care of somebody who has multi-system organ failure, trying to figure out what you can do to get them surgery, you know, because they don't know how to bill for disease states. They deal, they're better at dealing with procedures and internal medicine just doesn't have a lot of that. So you have to 
they're just really complicated and you have to take the time to sort that out and you just don't get that training. You learn that as you go. You're building on what you have treated a previous patient for. You're calling different people. You're learning these different medicines as they come out. But it's it when you first come out of school, you're scared to write an antibiotic. You know, after you've done this a long time, you're not scared for the antibiotic, but you're scared for all the other thousand medicines that you're writing that are combined with these. And that's that's one thing that I see is you're just, you need to be with somebody you can trust to be able to build that because these are some sick people now. And you had, I know where you've practiced all these years and you've had overseeing and collaborating physicians that had incredibly sick patients. So you've developed these skills over time. Through that, yes. It's, um, the physician I've worked with the longest is, he, you know, he actually did a lot of hospice work, um, did a lot of hospital work, internal medicine, of course. Uh, we've had uh, the other physician, I think he has, what, six or seven board certifications. <laughs> he collects them and has treated half of Coffee County. But, you know, they were all willing to train and all willing to teach, and they all brought their niche to the table, and we just all build a good relationship for this community that we are treating these patients the best we can with the limitations that we have. Well, y'all did, but because of your hard work and your dedication, you know, now, like I told you the other, you know, a few days ago, now it's everybody wants to go and see Pam. I mean, they really do. <laughs> and and now it's almost to the point that it's like, well, you know, if I can't see Pam, if I can just see somebody in the office, because, you know, at least Pam's there. I mean, you've worked very hard, but you have definitely built the, what is it, the like, know and trust or whatever factor. She is well-loved in this community. Mm-hmm. Well, I try to be, you know, I try to treat people as I want to be treated. I want to... Because, I, like I said, I do know them. I see them all the time. And I want to, I don't want to make any mistakes that I can help. And I want to help people when I can. How have you kept that your focus all these years? You know, because, you know, management does change. And is I think I have to be able to lay down at night with a clear conscience of knowing I've did the best I can for those patients. I can't treat anybody poorly that, you know, that even if I may want to, I just can't do it, you know, underlying circumstances of what they've done in the past, but I still have to look at them as a human. I still have to look at them as they have family. They're somebody's child. They're somebody, and they're important to somebody, and that's just who I am. I guess my daddy always told me, you better flourish where you're planted. Yes, it's a recurring theme from our guest. And we've learned a lot from you today, and I know that everyone listening has as well. So tell our listeners how they can find you if they would like to get in with you or anyone in your group to see you as a patient. I work at Douglas Medical Specialist in Douglas, Georgia. Uh, we have a great team of physicians and nurse practitioners that have a lot of education and a lot of experience in different backgrounds. Uh, we all get along really well. See, you know, we share a lot of the patients a lot, and so anytime it's we're in the Second Doctor's Building, it's 200 Doctor's Drive, and it's 912-384-3338. Well, thank you for being here today. It's a wonderful conversation, and what a fascinating history you have. One of the first nurse practitioners down here. It's a, it's a great story. and <laughs> paved and the way for many of us in this You state. certainly... Yeah, uh, yeah I, I one time would like to know how many, how many students I've actually had in this area. A bunch. There's a no bunch. way. If you've been a student 
of Pam's and you're listening, let us know and try to get that number for her. It's um, It was a decision that was made for you, it sounds like, but it certainly helped thousands and thousands and thousands of people over the years. And we are we are glad y'all made that decision. And we're, we've enjoyed it. Like I said, it, you can get overwhelmed at times, but it is a very fulfilling career. And, you know, I encourage anybody that has an interest in it to go for it. Well, Mark, I loved having Pam here as a guest. Yes. Wonderful guest. Absolutely wonderful. Known her forever. Pam is a very dynamic individual. Oh, very, very. She has saved more lives than anybody else in town, probably. But as we know, it's time for my favorite part of the show. We get to go to our phone a friend segment where I get to ask you questions that are submitted by our listeners or maybe they're submitted by coworkers, friends, family members. But today I want to do something just a little bit different. You know, since Pam was here and she is a nurse practitioner and she's one of the first nurse practitioners here in our area, I would like to kind of let our listeners see a little bit what it's like for me as a nurse practitioner to actually, you know, what the conversation may be like when I actually phone a friend and call you with help with a patient scenario. Does that sound okay to you? Sounds great. Okay. So I have... An elderly individual who has a remote and recent history of cancer. It's unknown if this is a new primary tumor or cancer or if this is metastatic disease. And for the past few days, the patient has had a headache, had neurological symptoms, back pain, and incontinence. What do I do? Well, that's uh, a lot to chew on. Um The important thing is stabilization always first, okay? You've said several things that are what we call red flags. You know, these are potentially very dangerous things acutely for this person. The history of cancer is paramount here. It's everything. Whether it's a a new primary or a met is really immaterial on the front end. You just know that they've got cancer, and now they're having headaches. They're having back pain. They're having neurologic symptoms up to and including incontinence. So they have brain symptoms with the headaches, and they also have lower uh, central nervous system symptoms with the incontinence. So couple that with the back pain, and the first thing that you should be worried about as a provider is the potential for spinal metastatic disease, which could ultimately compress the cord and cause paraparesis or paraplegia and make the person paralyzed, which is absolutely to be avoided. It sounds like this person can't be cured, but nobody wants to spend their final days, months, or years paralyzed. So I do think that this person, it would be mandatory that they get immediately to an emergency room, and they relate all of these symptoms to the to the um, providers there, and you get emergency imaging studies of the brain and the spine. Of course, you're worried about a spinal met, but you're also having the headaches and the neurologic symptoms. So you're also going to be worried about brain metastasis. Now, there's other things that can do this. Maybe it's um, not metastatic disease causing the back pain. Maybe they just have back pain. And so that's where your physical exam would be so important because if they have uh, a metastatic tumor compressing the cord, they're going to have hyperreflexia, meaning spastic legs and overactive reflexes below the level of the pain. If they have something called Lambert-Eaton syndrome or Eaton-Lambert syndrome, which is a perineoplastic syndrome, 
which is an autoimmune, an immune response to the tumor that starts attacking the central nervous system, that's more of a myasthenic process. It mimics myasthenia gravis, where the patient is weak in their proximal musculature. They actually are hyporeflexic, meaning their legs are weak and they don't respond when you do deep tendon reflex testing. And they have other problems, um, autonomic dysfunction and maybe some um, vision change and dry mouth and difficulty swallowing, much like a patient with myasthenia gravis. So you've presented an extremely complex patient, okay, with a multitude of possibilities that could or could not be related to their tumor directly or indirectly. Another possibility would be infections, okay? Anybody with cancer is immunosuppressed, particularly once their tumor burden becomes large. Then they, they're in an immunosuppressed state, so maybe it's all infectious. Maybe they have a spinal epidural abscess or something, or maybe they have meningitis. It's, you don't need, and maybe this person's already on treatment somewhere. And part of a lot of cancer therapies is steroids. So you're immunosuppressed because you're getting chemotherapy. You're immunosuppressed because you're getting uh, x-ray treatments. You're uh, x-radiation therapy treatments, not just diagnostic x-rays. You're immunosuppressed because you're on steroids and other adjunctive therapies. So there's a lot to contend with with this patient. I do think this person would be beyond the acute capacity of, of an office. They, they need to be in a, a hospital, in an emergency room or similar setting. And there's just an enormous host of things to, to look at. I think that this is a person where a very broad differential has to be entertained, as always, but certainly in somebody that may be facing life or uh, central nervous system threatening diseases. Um, you're going to have to look at vascular causes, infectious causes, neoplastic causes, uh, toxic causes, et cetera, et cetera. So there's just a lot to look at. I think this person demands critical care level medicine, whether it be the ER or inpatient medicine. Um, and the important thing for you and for people in your position in an office, in a primary care setting is to recognize the difference between a patient that I have time to work with and a patient that I don't have time to work with. And then back to that relationship with the patient. You know them, they know you. Hopefully y'all have been seeing each other for a number of years. So when you tell them, hey, you really have to go to the ER, they're gonna listen to you because they trust you. And that's the important thing in answering that question right there. Well, it is. And not only do I have time versus not have the time, so to speak, but I think also knowing my limitations as a provider, and I'm not ashamed to say that, you know, I'm not an x-ray machine. I'm not a CAT scan machine. I'm not surrounded by, like you've told me many times, expensive equipment so that we can get this person an answer as rapidly as possible and to feed off of what Pam said and you just said this is where I would also lean on my relationship relationships that I've hopefully built with other providers in the community I would pick up the telephone and call the ER doctor and let them know hey this is my patient this is what's going on with them just kind of out of courtesy for the patient and for the provider to keep it going both ways to help continue that continuity of care for this patient. Yes, communication is everything. I mean, it's very valuable to me sitting in the emergency department when somebody that knows the patient picks up the phone and calls me. That's why I always try to be crazy nice to them because I might get lucky and help somebody. And the other thing that's important, and I tell people this all the time, 
It, it's really easy to look smart when you're surrounded by millions and millions of dollars worth of advanced technology, MRI machines, CAT scan machines, instant lab data, ultrasounds, x-rays, et cetera, et cetera. All that stuff is was invented for a reason. It's because we need it sometimes. Sometimes people are really, really that sick, unfortunately. And so that's really what the emergency department and the hospital offers. They offer immediate stabilization and investigation beyond the capacity of routine outpatient testing that may take a lot of time, a lot of pre-authorizations that you just don't always have. I mean, and so again, it, it wraps back around to the relationship. You know the person, they know you, you know it's different, they know there's something going on inside of them that's different, and hopefully you have fostered a level of trust with that person that when you say something like, you have to go to the hospital now, they believe you and they do it. Absolutely. And just to close, you know, again, to all of our listeners, if you have a question that you would like for Mark to answer, whether you are a provider or a patient, either one, go to our website at markedmedicine.com, click on the Ask Dr. Mark tab, and you can submit your questions to us and you may hear him answer them next week. Thank you all for listening.